Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, May the 31st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As the dust settles after the European elections and the political manoeuvring intensifies over the new parliamentary dispensation and on agreeing who the next president of the European Commission will be, arguably the key figure in all this is Emmanuel Macron. The French president has been the strongest advocate of faster and deeper European integration, while showing diminishing tolerance for the UK's endless agonising over Brexit. But who is Emmanuel Macron? What has formed him? And what drives him now? Sophie Petter is Paris bureau chief of The Economist, and she's also the author of Révolution Française, which tells the story of this very unusual politician from obscurity to the presidency of France within a few short years. I talked to her in advance of her appearance at the Doki Book Festival in June. Sophie Petter, you're very welcome to the podcast. Uh, reading your book, it, it, it really was a revelation. I realised how uh, what I thought I knew about Emmanuel Macron, I didn't actually know. And there is a lot more to find out about him. Um, first of all, just to start with the title, and maybe this illustrates why I really didn't perhaps understand as much about him as I should. Révolution Française, I, I didn't think of Macron as a revolutionary figure. Well, I suppose it was revolutionary what happened in the sense that he was an outsider in politics. You know, his background is was originally in banking um, and he uh, was not part of the established party political system in France. I mean, he was an insider in some respects because he'd been uh, educated at NR, which is the top civil service school. He had uh, been uh, working at the presidency under Francois Hollande. But if you think of the way in which French politics had worked in the past, you know, if you want to have a go at the presidency, you have to be one of the main, belong to one of the main parties, have a sort of series of heavyweight politicians behind you, have a kind of a war chest uh, to finance it. And he had none of that. So it is in that sense, I think it was a, 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 a it was an insurgency against the established political setup, which made it very revolutionary. I mean, obviously, the French have a very particular way of doing these, the way that they groom their elites from an early age and they go through, in a, they become what the French call a narc, uh, and then they move on to positions of power. But in a way, what Macron did would be as astonishing in Ireland or the UK or Germany as well, in that he hadn't run for elected office. Um, he was a sort of behind the scenes man in terms of uh, any of his government experience. And to go from that to the highest position in the land would be extraordinary in any democracy. I think that's right. And I think, you know, on top of that, you have to put uh, the fact that he was trying to create something at the centre of French political life. And as you can see from the UK at the moment, how incredibly difficult that is. You know, there is this theoretical space between the left and the right, which, um, you know, uh, where you there's a sort of pro-European, um, broadly market friendly, but with a strong emphasis on social protection. Um, that space does exist in most countries. But, you know, the UK UK's experience, I think, is a good example of how incredibly difficult it is to actually create a party from nothing in that space. And what you've seen in France, um, and it, so far it's lasted because you still have the dominance of this party en marche, 
uh, in the National Assembly, uh, where where Macron has a majority. So it was not only the assault on the presidency, but it was the assault on the sort of the, the way in which the party political system was set up in France. Maybe to understand a little bit of his biographical details, and of course something to bear in mind is that he is, you know, by by, by usual standards, remarkably young for somebody who has ascended to, to, to the very top of French politics. And he comes from, a, I suppose, what you'd call a comfortable provincial bourgeois background. Yes, I mean, comfortable, I think, is the important word to use here, because if you go to Amiens, the town he grew up in, and you go and look at the house that he uh, was his family home and still lived in by his father, actually, you know, it's in a terrace street of houses in a comfortable suburb. But this is not, you know, the sort of moneyed uh, suburbs that you'd find outside Paris in places like Neuilly or, or Versailles. So I think, you know, yes, comfortable middle class. His parents were both doctors. Um, but this was not, you know, he was not born into into great wealth. So I think that the meritocratic side to what Macron achieved, leaving a provincial town of Amiens, ending up at Enna, uh, ending up uh, running for the presidency, was nonetheless sort of represented the way, you know, when France does make its sort of meritocratic uh, system work, he he was he was he's a representative of that rather than someone who was born into the sort of Parisian elite circle. Indeed, and he was a. He, he was a golden boy, I think it's fair to say, at, at school. And, you know, so that, that's why he was picked out and, and ended up in Enel, wasn't he? He was academically excellent. He was charismatic. He was very impressive. Well, when you talk to his um, teachers at the time, they were all, I think, sort of slightly uh, almost taken aback by having him in the class because he was clearly somebody who shone at all subjects and was, uh, you know, I think what stood out really was his maturity as well, that he was someone who was very at ease with adults, even as a a young teenager. And the most obvious example being the fact that he got on uh, so well with his drama teacher that he ended up um, uh, marrying her. So I think you can uh, see someone who was a precocious in in many respects, not just academically, but also uh, socially and um, socially as well. Yeah, yeah. I wanted I want to talk about the, his 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 wife in a moment, but in a way, what you're describing there kind of goes back to his his early childhood. He talks about being uh, some of his most important memories are time spent with his grandmother. He's not keen on going to teenage parties. He'd rather stay at home and read and uh, play the piano. Uh, he's uh, he's a rather unusual teenager. I think that's right. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that he was in some way sort of an outcast or or antisocial. He clearly had lots of friends uh, and I interviewed a number of them for my book. But um, the I think that what was different was that he was just as happy, you know, losing himself in his in losing himself in his books. Uh, And when I interviewed him the second time for my book, I was very struck because he described himself uh, as he compared himself to his dog, who is a half breed. Uh, And I think and what he meant by I said, what did you mean by that? And he said, I've always felt that I didn't quite fit in. And I think that that reaches all the way back to to childhood as well. You know, he he was sociable and he had friends, but he didn't quite fit in. I think he's always been sort of uh, slightly felt slightly uh, older than older than his years and, and not quite part of of not quite the same as anyone else. And then in his mid-teens, as you say, he uh, he begins a relationship with his teacher, Brigitte, who is 23, is married, uh, mother of three or four children. She um, She's 23 years older than him. I think in countries like Ireland and the UK, maybe we look at this and we kind of say, the French do things sort of differently, don't they? Um, is, <laughs> is that fair? Or I'm trying to understand how a relationship like that, which to be honest, in the modern world, in the 21st century, is borderline scandalous uh, in the way we think about such relationships at this stage. 
how it worked. Well, I think it was scandalous for the bourgeois provincial town of Amiens at the time. And clearly, the one of the motivations for uh, Macron going away to finish his school in Paris uh, was precisely, partly his parents wanted him to, to forget about the teacher and leave her, that all behind. But it was also because it was a scandal um, for the, 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 age, the age gap, the fact that it's a teacher and a student. It was never his teacher. Important to know that. She was a drama club teacher. Um, for him, um, but you know he was uh, the same age as her one of one of her daughters, and um, this was an you know perhaps at, this, at these days it wouldn't that kind of scandal wouldn't have been covered up, um, but that was then. And you know the remarkable thing about it is it's a relationship that defied everything. It defied convention. It defied uh, social mores at the time, um, and has somehow lasted. Hey, and and looking at that story and the fact that they did end up together and they uh, and they became married and they they seem very happy, I, I can just envision the situation in the comfortable bourgeois home with the father saying "c'est pas possible" and sending them off to um, to Paris. And in most cases, that might end up being the end of it. And it's a sort of an indication of Macron's willingness to make the impossible possible that he ended up, uh, I suppose, um, achieving his dream of marrying Brigitte. I, I think it says a lot about him in a way because it wasn't just his parents who were against it. It was also uh, Brigitte's family and particularly one of her older brothers who did his best to keep them apart. Um, and I think everyone just assumed it would all blow over. It was a sort of childhood crush. Um, but, you know, it didn't. And I think it says a lot about an incredible sense of, I, th- I think, a sort of, I would say almost a thick skin that has uh, grown around both Macron and Brigitte, an ability to withstand all sorts of criticism uh, and probably has enabled him to withstand that sort of difficulties that he's in, uh, countering now in the presidency. You know, if you've gone through all those years, as he said it, um, if you came, went through all those years of reproach and of censure and of disapproval uh, that he said he could see in the eyes of others um, over his marriage, that you know at that point you develop a sort of shell around yourself, and you can probably you probably um, are able to deal with a lot more difficulty than than many people of his age. It's it's also in a way the first example of him as a as a risk taker because in a way he is taking a sort of risk. He's going against the current. He's going against popular opinion for how he should, you know, how he should comport himself and how he should behave himself because of a strong belief on on his part. But it's 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 a massive choice and therefore a risk to take, particularly at such a young age. Yes, and I think you've you know you you can see a pattern. It's it's risk taking, and I think it's it's more than that. It's also an incredibly strong desire to be independent and not to depend on anybody. Um, he didn't want to, uh, he wanted to forge his own way with his personal relationship. He wanted to forge his own way in terms of uh, the, the careers he chose, the, the fact that he went finally into banking in order to make some money so that he wouldn't have to depend on anyone in that respect. I think you see a, a sort of desire to be free, to be independent to take make your own choices as well as obviously as you said uh, to take risks and live with the consequences and so at his you know at his time at Enna or rather following his time at Enna he he sort of moves between investment banking making some money as you say and the upper echelons of of what we think of as the civil service but it's rather more blurred in France the way that the administrative state works he's he's in sort of mid levels of government i suppose Yes, I mean, the way it works when you leave Enna, if, if you do as well as he did, which he was, I think he came out sixth uh, on, in the final rankings, 
um, you are guaranteed one of the very top top jobs in the in the civil service. And in France, that really opens the doors to to a tiny circle of people who then, in a way, become your sort of mentors and your um, your your introduction to an address book of of the elite of of, of France. And and that's what happened. You know, he went to uh, the finance ministry. He worked for Jean-Pierre Jouillet, who then went on to become Francois Hollande's head of staff. He's now currently the French ambassador in London. Uh, and uh, and characters like that played an extraordinarily important role in opening the door uh, for Macron to to uh, to a wide number of, of people. And, you know, he is someone said to me during the research for my book that Macron is a networking machine. And this you can you can see this happening at that time in his life. You know, he took advantage of all those doors, stepped straight through them and and started accumulating a very impressive address book of, of contacts right at the heart of the elite. And within that elite, I mean, even though he's in merchant banking and maybe this is something, again, that works differently in France than it does in some other countries. He's also on the centre to centre left in terms of his perceived political affiliations. Yes, he is. And he was very close um, to Michel Rocard, who, a former French prime minister who uh, was a member of the Socialist Party, but on the uh, sort of moderate centre-left side of the Socialist Party and was um, very much a sort of figure of that, what they call the deuxième gauche or the second left in France. So uh, in, in contrast to Mitterrand, who was more uh, of, a, of, a, of a sort of more proper left-wing socialist um, leader. And that was the circle that Macron moved in and felt comfortable in. And it's not at all unusual in France to find business leaders and people in banking, uh, even investment banking, who are very much on the centre-left. You know, this is a country which has uh, equality as one of its uh, part of its motto, and uh, I think that is uh, part, part even even in those sort of circles in finance, you still feel, feel or find people who feel uh, much happier and more comfortable on the centre-left than they would uh, in, in other parts of the political um, landscape. Um, one of the many good things about the book is it sort of sets the context, the, lo- the longer historical uh, picture against which this particular story is set. So you look back over certainly the last three presidencies of, of, of Jacques Chirac, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, um, and François Hollande and there's a there's a recurring pattern that they come in with a programme of reform of one sort or another um, very often trying to address some of the, the sort of the institutionalised blockages to, to reform and social change in France and they run up against the hard realities not just of the French state but of the French people themselves who really don't seem keen on those reforms and they retreat in some confusion and, and ultimately end in failure that's the sort of backdrop isn't it? Well, it is, and I think that's that. That is the pattern that you've seen in France. That um, it's been very, it's very difficult. France is quite a conservative country in some respects, and then has these sort of moments of of rebellion against that conservatism. And and in a way, Macron has now encountered that himself, because although the first eighteen months of his presidency, I would say, were were remarkably um, uh, productive in terms of putting in place all sorts of reforms that people at the time said weren't possible, like uh, making making the labour market a little bit less rigid, like uh, reforming the SNCF, the, the state railways. He faced those strikes. He he withstood the sort of pressure on the streets and, and got his reforms through. But obviously, 
the last six months have been slightly different. Uh, he's faced the gilets jaunes, the yellow vest movement, and that has been, um, I think, a reflection of the fact that, yes, you know, even if the, even though the French elected him president, there is still, uh, the country is still divided, and there are still a lot of people who find it very difficult to accept a, a, a change, and, a, and especially the sort of change that Macron's trying to bring about. Yeah, I want to explore the gilets jaunes movement in in a moment, but but first to get back to, I mean, he was he was back in government in Francois Hollande's government. He had a he had a senior role, senior economic role for for a couple of years, and of course that government ran into more and more trouble. And as it became increasingly clear that Francois Hollande, uh, whether or not he was going to stand for election again, was not was probably not going to be re-elected. This is when. Macron, I suppose, starts making his move, starts thinking of himself as a as a viable candidate for the presidency, starts having meetings behind the scenes. It's an extraordinary tale for those of us who are interested in politics and how politics works of somebody right at the heart of the system uh, aiming in a way to kind of blow it up. Yes, and and doing it, you know, uh, under the radar, because I think one of the things that's sometimes said about what happened in France uh, with the election of Macron is that he was just he was just very lucky. And obviously, up to a point, he was. But I would also argue that he made his own luck. He Mm. created opportunities for himself. And the way he did that was by uh, precisely taking those sorts of risks um, that very few people are prepared to take. And one of those was to create a party um, uh, over a year before the presidential election at a time when nobody knew quite what he was uh, what was he up to with this party. He had told Francois Hollande, for whom he, tra- he, he was working at the time, oh, it's, uh, you know, it might just be a think tank or a sort of movement or we'll see where it goes. Um, and in the meantime, he had these teams working in, other, in, in each other's kitchens, you know, trying to sort of draw up uh, the makings of a party. So he very much um, played this sort of game, uh, keeping his options open, and then ultimately decided to run for the presidency um, before Francois Hollande had, de- had decided what he himself would do. And that, I think, was the ultimate, for, for Francois Hollande, the ultimate betrayal, but for Macron, the, the ultimate risk, because... He stuck his he stuck his neck out, and it could have gone horribly wrong. But he, in a way, made 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 his own his own luck at that point. And that was sort of the, the, there are key moments in any political career, and obviously, you know, where, where the knife needs to be pulled and probably stuck into the back of somebody. And that's that's one of the key moments in in this particular story. But the thing that really struck me about the book, and the thing that again, I think I hadn't properly understood is that that movement which he was building, what became En Marche, the, the political party which now holds a majority in the uh, in the Assemblée Nationale, um, it, it is a real movement. I think I didn't quite understand that. You talked to a lot of these people who signed up for it um, and who, who ended up standing for election and ended up, many of them to their surprise, becoming deputies. Yes, I think it was, um, I mean, I see it as sort of a hybrid, you know, it was an unusual structure. At the same time, it was very concentrated around a tiny team of almost millennials. I mean, these were very young people with very little experience, but who were dedicated to the cause working, uh, you know, after hours, late into the night um, on on setting up on Marsh. But at the same time, it was a very sort of grassroots, uh, locally based uh, sort of up almost uprising of people who didn't take part in politics. They didn't really like politics. They didn't like politicians, but they would uh, create their own committees locally. They would start holding meetings in each other's in bars and cafes. 
at the beginning, only few people would ever turn up. And then uh, bit by bit, they realized something was happening. So it, it was this strange um, hybrid between both top down and, and, and very sort of grassroots. Um, that, that worked incredibly well for Macron in, in 2017. And it helped him, I would say, uh, create a sort of legitimacy for himself as someone, a sort of a, a candidate of, of the people of, of the gro- of the ground, rather than just this figure from, uh, you know, the, the, this anarch, this figure from the the, the French elite. Um, the big question now, of course, is what's happened to Omar since then. But in certainly in terms of uh, how it worked for him during the presidential election, it was it was a remarkable sort of spontaneous um, as well as as, as, as organised party model of, of how to create a party. Because the fear might be perhaps that that something that it's that is put together so quickly can disappear equally quickly. Yes, I think that's right. And you know how how deep are the roots? If you look at the established parties in France, you look at uh, parties like the Socialist Party with its local federations and its uh, activists who have uh, you know are, are, are sort of dedicated to the cause and have their structures and their and their their local sort of reputations. That's a party that is that is rooted in the ground. Um, en Marche, uh, since that election, has sort of faded away in some respects. It's it's going to take a long time, I think, if if they if the party is is to it's to really put down proper foundations um, and, and make it lasting because it's still a party that's essentially uh, organised around the, the the figure of Emmanuel Macron. It's not um, obvious in the longer term, how much of a future the party has without him. Um, so I think it does show both how it's possible to do that, to create that sort of momentum, the excitement, drawing in people to politics on the ground, but also it shows how, um, you know, that it's 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 already impressive to have done it, but it's it's a big challenge to make that last and in a, in a sort of proper durable way. And in terms of just the sheer mechanics of politics and the way that they operate in France, it, is the very particular way that the French electoral system is organised with the, you know, the, the, the two-stage election, uh, was that particularly helpful to this project, do you think? Well, it, it, it is because it means that a candidate like Emmanuel Macron, who uh, came top in the first round, but with only 24% of the vote, could then go on um, into the second round runoff and where he faced Marine Le Pen and then benefited, obviously, from an, an anti-Marine Le Pen vote. So, you know, in some respects, uh, it does op- offer that sort of opportunity. But, you know, having said that, uh, and that's why some people have, have suggested that, you know, well, he was just lucky because the system is like it is. Well, yes and no, because if you look back at previous elections, um, it's been very difficult and almost never happened that you've had a candidate, certainly not one that's won, who would get through to the second round um, without the backing of, a, of an established party. So that even though in theory it opens the way to newcomers, uh, there are very few examples of that being the case. It's almost always, uh, and certainly the, the those who've won have been, have come from uh, the established party. So uh, you know, it's still it's still an achievement, despite the fact that the system, in some ways, um, was helpful. I suppose one of the things I realised that I misunderstood about Macron was when he was elected. First of all, I looked at him and I thought he was some sort of a French version uh, of a, of a third way centrist in the in the mould of Blair twenty years earlier. In terms of his sort of ideological position on the spectrum and and what and what he was seeking to do to kind of to win the centre and put together a sort of a centrist coalition of that port and coming from a sort of a technocratic background. Looking 
looking for technocratic solutions to the problems which French society faces. But I, I, one of the things I think you, you explain really well in the book is that there's a whole other side to him, which perhaps in the Anglo-Saxon world we look at with a bit of suspicion, which is that, you know, as a series of oratorical flourishes or a fondness for grand philosophical statements. But he actually believes that, you know, he, is, he, he does have a vision of something, of, of something bigger than just technocratic improvements in society. Yes, I think so. You know, I think this is the philosopher in him. He did a graduate degree in philosophy. He originally wanted to study literature. Um, he is very cultured, very well read. And I think he's thought a lot about uh, what the sort of symbols and meaning of of, of, politi- of politicians, of leadership. Now, you know, obviously he's, he's, he's got a lot of that wrong. And the, part of the problem that he's faced with the Gilles Jaune has been the, the way in which he's um, embodied the presidency, but I think that the the bigger the bigger idea is that you know you you are in a we're living in a world where you're facing the, the, the sort of rising and and seductive forces of populism and of nationalism and the sort of darker narratives which are very simple but they are seductive and that they're working in 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 all of our Western democracies and that those who sit in the centre have got to find a way of talking to people of 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 giving people of touching people sort of emotionally and with a with a sense of sort of dreams that can match those those the narratives the populist narratives and it's very difficult to do europe is something he's he has managed so far to uh to to use europe as a as a way of mobilizing people but it's 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 he has he, he tries to talk about conquest he tries to talk about heroes about uh belief in 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 values and 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 touching people in other ways it's it's a very difficult thing to do, um, but it is something that I think makes him a slightly more uh, a, a denser character than just the sort of technocratic policy wonkish uh, reputation that some people sort of have of him. Yeah, you talk in particular about the, there's this particular speech he gave in Athens, I think, at the Parthenon, where he kind of puts puts you know some some of this stuff into words, and in a way, it kind of sets he sets himself in opposition against the traditional European Union way of doing business: technocrats meeting behind closed doors, agreeing deals which are so opaque that most people can't understand them and then gradually getting them over the line, uh, often in the face of electoral opposition. Yes, I think so. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, the, the rhetorical flourishes, uh, he, he does it to excess. And I suppose if you were talking to people in Berlin, they would say that, you know, but Macron's great at making speeches, but what has he actually achieved in terms of uh, pushing the, the, the policies that he wants uh, forward and building the kind of coalitions that you need in order to put them in place? Um, so, you know, there are, there are probably limits to that. But um, when you hear him talking about Europe and uh, you, I think it's a really very strong conviction uh, that Europe is something that needs to mean, um, have meaning for people, that people need to be able to feel it, to sense it, not just to sort of um, believe it or, or understand it in terms of uh, GDP figures or, or talk about single markets. But underpinning that, uh, that, that grand, more philosophical vision, I suppose, implicit in that is, uh, accompanying that is you are going to need greater integration uh, in Europe, um, which is something which a lot of people are, are resisting. 
Yes, and and uh, one of the places that they're resisting some of his ideas is 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 Germany, and I think that he's um, coming up uh, against uh, the you know reality, which you know, he, Macron came in with these with these this both this big vision, but also this long to do list of uh, things he wanted to to achieve in terms of integrating, particularly the eurozone. If you think about the um, projects that he he still has, he wants a, a significant eurozone budget. He wants a finance minister minister for the eurozone. Zone. He's even talked about having a, a Eurozone parliament. Um, these sorts of things uh, are, you know, have made very modest progress in part because there's, they meet some skepticism uh, in Berlin. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a, a, a kind of popular um, skepticism, perhaps, but it's also a, 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 a pragmatic and um, a, a real skepticism on the part of even his own um, partners in Europe. And, and closer to home then, the Gilets Jaunes movement, am I right to say that it seems from outside to be ebbing away, but perhaps there are lessons that he might have learned from it? Yes, I think that's right. If you look at some of the numbers, um, in November when the movement began, there were 280,000 people on the streets in Paris uh, the first weekend. And uh, the most recent weekend, um, which was weekend, uh, tw- tw- we're now on weekends so of 26 or 27, um, the numbers are down to about 20,000. So the, 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 it, it has it has faded. Um, the way the were, there was a moment when almost every, you felt driving around France that almost every roundabout was occupied by yellow vest protesters. And that's not the case now in France. Um, but uh, it still has uh, some public support, less than it did, but in if you look at the opinion polls, there are still there's still you know almost a majority of the French who say they still either support or sympathise with the with the yellow vest movement, um, and it's also the violence of it. So you may have only twenty thousand people on the streets on a on a Saturday now, uh, consecutive weekend since since November. Um, but the violence that they cause and the violence that this has provoked on the part of the police as well, which has been a big issue in France, um, has, has, has has meant that, you you know, it's not over. It's faded, but it's not over. And uh, Macron has, has found that, I think, by far the most serious political crisis of his presidency. Um, I don't want to give spoilers to our readers, but I've got to tell them what the last line of the book is. And it is, uh, it is a mistake to bet against Emmanuel Macron. Uh, it looks to me as if, you know, the odds are against him in many respects, including the conservatism of in, in France, which you uh, describe, but also probably the opposition, and not just in Germany. Uh, people in Ireland get the heebie-jeebies at uh, some of Macron's proposals in relation to digital taxes and so on as well, that the odds are arrayed against him in, in, in Europe as well. But you say he still, uh, he still has a shot at achieving some of these objectives. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look, uh, yes, at the European agenda, he has made uh, some progress, but it's been modest. And as you said, he's up against scepticism on all sorts of, of his policies. But if you look at the um, uh, protests against his reforms, they haven't been they haven't been against the things he's actually done, like uh, the labour market reform or against the railway reform. He has, uh, I think, loosened up the, the labour market and encouraged private sector job creation in a way that's been uh, very marked. 
overlooked and, and underreported and under-recognized, I think, in France. There's been a, a, a sharp increase in the creation of jobs in France and in particular of the sort of jobs. It's a real problem in France that young people find it difficult to get permanent jobs and the share of permanent job contracts has, has increased uh, sharply over the last um, three three quarters. So that, that is a real achievement. Now, when people have to start feeling that, they have to start seeing it and, and, and believing in it. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to say at this point that, that uh, on the domestic front that things haven't been achieved because they have. Um, and and the, other, the, the real kind of test of that in some respects is that people, if you look at a poll uh, today, obviously it's way out. But if you take a poll today of what would your voting intention be um, in 2022, uh, Emmanuel Macron still comes out top. And finally, just to ask you a question about his style, because that's something that, that strikes me, is Jupiterian style, this uh, not ashamed to kind of, to be the kind of the haut en bas, to kind of, to, to use fancy words, to look like, uh, to look like a member of the elite, I suppose. And he's kind of, he's run into trouble once or twice with that. He, he, he lacks the common touch. And I wonder how well that works in terms of his international relationships as well. Uh, the wooing of Donald Trump, which started so well, but seems to have gone off the, off the boil now. How much is his political style an asset and how much an encumbrance? I think that, you know, you have to, put it somewhat in context. He came uh, to, into office after François Hollande, who had wanted to be what he called a normal president. So almost sort of Scandinavian, you know, you just um, uh, don't, uh, you don't want to look too presidential and you want to try and behave like an ordinary uh, guy. Well, you know, the French presidency isn't that kind of office. And I think Macron felt that it was time to restore a sense of dignity and and authority to it. But he, he did take that to excess. And I think part of the Gilets Jaunes movement has been in protest against precisely his style of governing, which he himself has called in the past Jupiterian. Um, and people felt that, you know, they wanted, yes, dignity, but they didn't want a sense of arrogance or a sense of uh, uh, a superiority or condescending uh, sort of style. And some of the comments he's made have been very unfortunate, sometimes quite wounding to people. So it's, I think he, he's taken that to excess. Uh, and I think that there's the Yellow Vest movement has been a in some ways, a wake-up call, and and you've seen a, a, a an effort in the most uh, in the most recent times to to change that and to try and sort of come back to come back to ground, uh, roll up his sleeves, uh, and 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 talk to people with a bit more respect and a little bit less of a sense of uh, of of grandeur. Sophie Petter, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Sophie. And just to say that if you found our conversation interesting, we'll be continuing it in two weeks' time at the Dalkey Book Festival, where we will be joined by the writer and journalist Simon Cooper. More information at dalkeybookfestival.org. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are always extremely welcome. And you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 